We are in Acts chapter 2. We, in previous weeks, have looked at Peter's sermon to some degree. We'll be looking at another portion of it today. I want to begin reading the passage as we continue on from last week. I want to start at verse 5 of Acts chapter 2. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look! Are, are not all those who speak Galileans? And when you read that as 21st century Americans, you don't catch what was being said. Galileans were noted as being the sloppiest of speakers. If you had any kind of accent that you wanted to imitate because you thought it was cool, Galilean would not be one of them. Because it would seem that everyone who spoke with a Galilean accent or dialect would be seen by others as being slow, not very intelligent. So when they mentioned the fact these are Galileans, and here they are, these Galileans are speaking to people from Crete and from from Phrygia and from Mesopotamia, they're speaking those particular languages and they're speaking those languages perfectly. That adds to the amazement because here you have these, these Galileans who can hardly speak their own language now are speaking perfectly a language they didn't even study. So then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome and, and parts of Libya, Adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, our own languages, the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Now I want to get to thir verse 13, is important, in light of what's going to happen. Others, mocking that they are full of new wine. <laughs> They're drunk. Now this is not what you would call the most perfect arrangement to get up and start to speak, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, 
since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. And you all know these men are Jews. Jews do not drink any alcohol. In fact, it's supposed to be a time of an hour of prayer from sunrise on up till after the third hour. They weren't supposed to consume anything. So he said, that's why he throws in the time figure there so they will realize, well, no, they're not supposed to be doing any kind of drinking at that point. Instead of looking at this like it was some kind of drinking fest, what you have to see here is what Joel had prophesied has come to pass. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Now one of the things that you have to understand when you're reading this, it's prophetic language. It's not literally saying that this is going to happen, that the, the moon will be turned into blood. That's not what he's getting at. In fact, when you speak of planets like that, it's generally showing that what is in charge is going to have a turnover. Before the coming and the great uh, of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's clear that Joel was talking about this time, the, the first coming of Christ and the great disruption that would be caused just by his first coming. And so in verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of this patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades or hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, and therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out that which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says of himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. For many generations, the scroll of the prophet Joel was unrolled and read in the synagogues and in the temple. And when it came to what we would now call chapter 2, the scrolls were not broken down into chapters. But as they rolled out to that place that we would call chapter 2 and toward the end of it, a passage about some great event that was to come was prophesied. And those who read it must have wondered, what does it mean? When will it happen? And the answers came on the day of Pentecost. And now the newly minted proclaimer of truth, the apostle Peter, would reveal that this day and what had happened, and indeed what was happening was the very fulfilling of what was foretold by Joel all these many years ago. He is not only reading the scripture, he's interpreting the scripture. And when it comes to the Psalms as well, again, he will be interpreting what the Psalm meant because it means nothing unless it's interpreted about Christ. At the same time, what Isaiah had written in in chapter 44 and verse 3, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Now that made sense in light of what was happening on that particular day. And much of what Ezekiel had prophesied was now coming to pass as well. The sermon for Peter that's recorded for us is 22 verses long with almost half of it, half of it being taken up of showing how the scriptures of the Old Testament had pointed to this time, to Christ's death, to his resurrection, to the work of Christ, what he would accomplish. And then in verse 34, the ascension. He had interpreted to them on that day what the scriptures meant. 
Christ had been presented to them. He approved that all that had happened was a predetermined plan. Yes, friends, it was that P word. Predestined. Predestined. Oh, you it's amazing to see how many people who believe the Bible recoil at that word. Oh, he used that word. The Holy Spirit used the word too. That's why the word shows up in Scripture. It was predestinated. I used to wonder why so many and so much anger and argument erupted over this word. It's a good word. It's a biblical word. It's a God-honoring word. And to those who might be offended by the word, first you have to ask, well, you're offended by a word that's in the Bible? But then on top of that, I would have to ask the question, Would you want a God that doesn't predestinate? Do you really want a God that is surprised when things happen and has to come up with alternate plans because something happened that he didn't expect? How would you like to read the book of Revelation? And the title of the book of Revelation is The Revelation Maybe. Because if you don't believe God's a predestinating God, then throw the book of Revelation out because you can't have any confidence in it because you can't bring it to pass because he didn't predestine it to happen. So what you're reading are possibilities and probabilities, but maybe not. No, that's not the God that any of us should want to worship. You know what that is? That's man. Man can't predict anything. Man can't really make the future happen. Even though there seems to be more shows that are more concerned about time travel and maybe we, can, maybe we can fix this in the past so things will be better in the future. No, you can't do that. In verse 23, Peter makes clear that this always no surprise Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, by the predetermined plan, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. You see, just because God predestined something doesn't mean people become robots. They freely did what they wanted to, but they didn't know that what they freely did was fitting into the plan and purpose of God. So he's kind of saying, you think this was random. (laughs) You took him and you crucified him, but God raised him up. Why? Well, in verse 24, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Why? Because God had predetermined, predestined that Christ would not be held by the Bonds of death. That's an important point. It was not possible. Why? Because it would have been going against the predetermined plan of God. Because God had predestined the death and the resurrection. 
and then gave inspiration through the Spirit to David to write about it. In verse 30, David got to be the prophet, not only a psalmist, but a prophet at the same time. And concerning this, see once again, verse 16 being interpreted and leaves nothing to question that it's proved to be pointing to Christ and his resurrection. So then, once again, David gets to be a prophet, and in Psalm 110, the Lord, in verse 36, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord, he didn't say the Lord said to me, the Lord said to my Lord. And again, this time it's about the ascension. So the putting all things together, beginning with a therefore, in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ is important because what it's saying there, you have made him both God and Savior. And so the very first sermon, in the very first sermon, Peter presents Christ. It's an evangelistic sermon. But it doesn't sound like one to our modern ears, does it? In our... If it was a modern type of service, it would be Peter pleading. Peter saying, don't you know that Jesus died for you? Jim Renahan, a president of our seminary, was talking the other day and he said, someone came to him and said, you know, I could never preach the gospel if I couldn't tell people that Jesus died for them. And Jim, who's a very humble man, looked at him and said, why would you want to say something to people that no one in the Bible said to them? Jesus never said it. Peter never said it. Paul never said it. John nor James ever said it. No one in the New Testament ever said it to the lost. No one in the New Testament ever said, Jesus died for you. Didn't do it. Now, words similar to that were said to those who were believers. But it was never meant for unbelievers. How do we know that Jesus died for somebody? They believe. They believe in him. That's how we know that Jesus died for them. Now, people can go around if they want to, and if it makes them feel better, I guess they can say, well, you know, Jesus died for everybody, but I want you to think about that statement. I want you to think about that statement. You run around saying Jesus died for everybody. Well, if Jesus died for everybody, you've just, you've just proclaimed universalism. Well, how have I done that? By saying that Jesus died for everybody, then everybody has to be saved. Because if Jesus died for everybody, the wrath of God for everybody has been removed from them. 
say, well, no, no, they have to apply it to themselves. All right, now we've got another problem, don't we? Because now you have Jesus being punished for people potentially. Now what if Gerald takes one of his children out to the vanning and gives him a, a paddling? And the child says, Daddy, why? And he says, because that's for potentially what you might do. Would that be right? Would that be justice? Would it be, could God be a perfectly just God if he punishes his son for things that do not apply to his son? Universalism. Well, if Jesus died for everybody, then everybody's off the hook. And that's wrong. All are forgiven. And if he died for all, yet they don't believe, then he was punished unnecessarily. Punished on potentialities. Note what happened here in verse 37. They were cut. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Why? Because the word of God is sharp as any two-edged sword. And that word translated cut can also mean, in other places it's translated smite. Like you would do with a sword, you'd smite somebody. After they heard Peter speak of the character of Jesus, of the prophecies concerning him, the fourth ride attesting to the resurrection from the dead, the ascension of Christ and the exaltation to the right hand of God, and having explained as to why all this had to take place, on this day, the speaking of the great works of God in many languages by untrained men in linguistics, and the charge of being complicit to the sin of crucifying him. So do you think everybody that was there listening to him that day said, stood before Pilate that day and said, crucify him, crucify him. No, I'm sure there were some there that day who had done that very thing. But lest you think that we're looking at something that's confined to that period of time, I would ask you to think again. You see, those who were there who did not believe. Well, they were the same then in spirit and in thought and in in nature 
as those who stood before Pilate and said, crucify him. Those who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, did not see him as the Lord, as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. They didn't see him as that. They saw him as an imposter and a liar, a deceived man at the worst. And I want us to see that these words come to us here where we are in this time as well. Because everyone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is of the same spirit, the same nature, the same mindset. They're no different from those who said crucify him. Because why were they saying crucify him? Because we don't believe he is who he is. And so you have joined hands with those who stood there that day. People have had all kinds of fits and have tied themselves into knots trying to figure out Hebrews 6 in verses 4 through 6 where, where it says, and you crucify again Christ. What are they talking about? Well, if you deny who Jesus is, then you put yourself in the same position in nature and spirit as those who stood before Pilate that day and said, crucify him. You're no different. Your mindset's the same. You're not in the same place yelling it out perhaps, but you're thinking the same things. He is not who he said he was. And that truth, that truth cut deeply. It exposed their hearts. It filled their conscience with remorse. And with a cry of desperation, they yelled out, what shall we do? <laughs> what a change. What a change had taken place. The ones who were walking around mocking said, you know, these fellows are drunk. Now are cut to the quick and said, man, what shall we do? The ones who were mocking are now seeking from them help and relief and direction. And as awakened sinners under the covenant of works, knowing that the, only the law and not grace, they cry out, what shall we do? See, that's, that's man in his old state. Must be something I can do now. Something to atone for sin. Something to get things right in the sight of God. Just as the rich young man who came to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do? Must I do to... To inherit the kingdom? What good thing must I do? Men, what must we do? See here, we see the first use of the law. There are three uses of the law. We went on a couple of Wednesday nights ago talking about it. The first use, as Paul would say, we called it pedagogical, but we're talking about the idea that the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It was there with the ruler across the knuckles, exposing us as sinners and leading us to Christ. You know, that's what the law does to those who are not in Christ. It condemns them and points them to Christ. There's the second use of the law, that's the civil use. 
we understand that it's good for society to follow the commandments. And the third use is for us who are believers. It's our guide. What do we do? How do we live in a way that pleases God? Well, here you are. Here you are. The law has done its work in its first purpose, teaching them their wretched condition before God. Nancy Pelosi was told by her bishop in San Francisco, you can't take communion. You can't take communion. Now, I applaud him for that. But she, in an interview following that, said, I know more than he does. And he doesn't know the gospel of Matthew. And I scratched my head and wondered, I wonder if she could even tell you if it's Old Testament or New. Maybe it's in the Apocrypha. They are Catholics. You see, that's the difference. She should have been cut to the heart over the idea that she, through what she endorsed, was breaking that commandment not to kill. We'll pick that up because that's what the unregenerate are like. They hear it. The word condemns them, but without the spirit, they don't respond. They harden. Peter points them to grace and to mercy. After they said, what, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now there's a whole lot to unpack and we won't be handling that all in this moment. We're coming down towards the end. But I want you to see his reply. He said, repent. Repent here means the very same thing as believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent means what? You change your mind. You turn in a different direction. And so what is he saying? You thought Jesus was not who he was. Repent of that. Turn and see that he is the one and only Savior. Turn. And if you now believe, believe in who He is, see Him as He is your only Savior, you perceived Him before as a deceiver, as an imposter, even a blasphemer, now see Him as He is, the only Redeemer, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. See that the cross and the resurrection and the ascension proves He is Savior. And believe that only what He has done can save you. And then if you have come to believe Him, 
Be baptized. That is, profess your faith in Him that He's cleansed you. You see, baptism shows that you needed cleansing, so you go down into the water and you come up, then that cleansing was provided by Jesus Christ. Well, what about this? He said to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. There are some that just go crazy about that and make a whole doctrine out of it. To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ points to a confirming to what he had commanded. Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. What do we see here? On the day of Pentecost, a lot of nations. A lot of nations. And what are we supposed to do? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when they were told to be baptized in the name of Jesus, it was meant this, to be baptized according to what His command is. And His command was what? To baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is following His authority. He is the one who made the command. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you already believe you already have the Spirit, here I believe he's pointing to the experience of the Holy Spirit at work in them, giving them a a new principle, a new power, freeing, freeing them from the dominion of sin, not just convicting, but now comforting Very quickly then, first, the Old Testament is evangelistic. It's all Peter, John, Paul, etc. That's the only scripture they had, and that's what they used to bring people to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And they held that the scripture was far more reliable than any experience they had. Second, See how, while not directly stated, the Holy Spirit took the word and, and produced conviction in these men. Third, see how Peter, how mightily he had been changed. He who had cowered before this little servant maid said, no, oh no, 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 I'm not one of them. now stands up before this large crowd and says, listen to me. That's a change. That's a powerful change. He had confidence, not in himself or his presentation, but now in the truth. And fourthly, he spoke of not only being right with God, not promising earthly success and benefits, but instead of the safety of the soul. Fifthly, see that he didn't have to seal to deal with them. (laughs) When they, they said, what shall we do? Peter didn't say, come forward. I've got 11 others here. We'll all pray for you. Instead, when they asked, what shall we do? He said, believe. Repent. Believe. You see, there's no secret 
prayer. There's no secret incantation. There's no, no sacred space that you come to to receive Christ. You receive Him right where you are. You can be riding down the road. The Word of Christ comes to you. The Holy Spirit convicts you. You can be saved right there as you're riding down the road. You can theoretically be saved as you're diving off a diving board into a pool. Just as you take that last jump and you look down and say, oh, this might be my last jump. I mean, you, if you say that a certain place is where you need to come to, you get superstitious. And then you begin to say, oh, then I can't be saved unless I come to that specific space. Nobody ever did that in Scripture. Man's additions, but man makes a good show of it. He didn't have to seal the deal. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had. These men had come to Christ in the power of the Spirit by the Word of God. May the same thing be said of all of us here. Let's stand together for prayer.